you're between the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids' club. Two weeks ago, we started a series called Living in Hope, walking through the book of 1 Peter. As you may have noticed, I missed last Sunday. I appreciate Jack Hanks, who did a fantastic job filling in for me of short notice. I appreciate he and Ann in our church. And you may or may not have known why I missed, and I shall rat myself out. I had the really cool opportunity last week to travel to Denver to watch the Broncos take on the Patriots. It's my older brother, my little sister, and her husband. Uh, it's a unique opportunity. We grew up in Denver, uh, longtime Bronco fans, and it was a great opportunity for me to be uh, with my brother and my sister uh, just having a time together, uh, absolutely incredible. And if you didn't watch the game, it was, it was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, we took the Patriots to task, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. You can clap for that. <laughs> and just for the record, to contrast Lenny's report, I did wear a shirt. Uh, in fact, it was a pretty cold day. I wore a lot of clothes. Um, but it was a great time with family. Glad we won and glad to be back at Calvary this morning. If you'd open the book of 1 Peter, uh, it's on page 10 to 14 in a pew Bible. If you don't bring a Bible with you to church, that's fine. We've put them in front of you. Uh, we use the ESV. If you don't have one, feel free to take the red one in front of you. It would be our gift to you. Uh, we want you to track with us in the text so that you un- know and understand that where we're going, what we're talking about is God's words, not Ben's opinion. Um, and so you'll see right in front of you uh, where we're at. So two weeks ago... You may have noticed we haven't gone very far because we're picking up the third verse today. Uh, it's a des- if you desire to be a good student of the Bible, the two of the most important things you need to understand when you walk into a book is who's it written by and who's it written to. And quickly you'd find that knowing these two things can give you a context that will frame your whole letter. Uh, so I kind of want to recap that a little. In verse 1, Peter declares himself to be the author. But he doesn't just give you his name. He gives you a major identifier to describe who he is. And this is what Peter says. He says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And while it's easy to tell you that this is the ancient form of writing, uh, a way that you would write an ancient letter would be to declare a name and something about yourself. Peter would, in fact, be making his ancient grammar teacher proud in this moment. You do need to lean in and consider that Paul says something about his principal identity that's meaningful. Peter tried himself to Jesus Christ. And as we walk in the series on living in hope, if you truly want to live in hope, you have to tie yourself to Jesus Christ. You have to tie yourself to him completely so that he becomes your whole identity. What Jesus demands from us is not our heart. What he desires from us is everything. That we give him everything. And that we choose to not be defined by worldly positions or accomplishments or moral standees. In fact, none of those things will matter eternally. But that we line ourselves up, we identify ourselves primarily with Jesus Christ, which is the only thing that will matter eternally. That we align ourselves to him. Otherwise, anything else we cling to is an idol. It's Jesus that matters. It's Jesus who saves. It's Jesus who gives life abundantly. And he's the one. So Peter writes to us from this framework 
And he offers it to us as an example lived out in his life of what does it mean to live in hope. And if we walk through more of Peter's life, you'd see the difference that it made in him. When he started to define himself by Jesus, he walked a whole lot differently than he had before. And, and at the end of the first verse, Peter then declares to whom he's writing. And this is what he writes. To the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And while the geography is important, the distinction that he offers these Pontesians, Galatians, Cappadocians, Asians, and Bithynians, I just wanted to prove to you I can make them all people groups, is that they are elect exiles. And what he says in that is two pretty important terms that you have to lean into. Peter declares two truths about them that are just as true for you. Peter calls them elect. And by that, Peter means that they were chosen by God. That they belong to God. And he clarifies that further in verse 2 by saying that it's according to the foreknowledge of God. Paul agrees with him in Ephesians 1. Saying that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And inevitably, some of you keyed into the word elect. You wrote it off as a theological term. And let me just take a moment to remind you. In fact, it's a biblical term. So we can either live with the tension it causes in our lives. Or we can mark it out with a sharpie. And those are kind of the realities that you get to, to deal with. And God wants to make it clear to you in this text, in a couple places in the Bible, that election means that he's calling you. That means you're chosen. Now you can lean into that and say all sorts of things, but what it definitively says is God chooses you. God loves you. God wants you. You individually matter to him. God declares you are mine, and he says so before you could do anything to earn it. And he says so before you could do anything to blow it. Therefore, God's choosing you is not based on your merit at all, or anything that could be said of you, or anything you could have done on your own. It's about him and not your work. And Peter calls them exiles. An ideal he'll bring us back to in chapter 2, and the Bible mentions elsewhere. But he calls them exiles because they're living in a place that is not their home, which is just as true for you. You are living in a place that is not your home, and it's not your hope, and it's not your salvation. One of the mistakes we can make as American Christians is to start buying into these lies and ideologies That our hope is in who gets elected to government. That our hope is in what happens in our country. That our hope is in what happens militarily. And and I'll tell you up front, I'm American, I love our country. But our hope is Jesus Christ. And he's our identity. And he's all we can pin everything to. So when Peter says the elect exiles, he puts some tension in some words by telling them as exiles... This world is not your home. You will not belong here, but you're chosen by somebody, and that somebody is God the Father. That you were loved, you were wanted, you have hope, you have salvation, and you will not find any of those things in this world. He tells you your identity is secure. And using that as his foundation... 
This idea of Peter giving you an example of who he is, identified by Jesus, writing to you, defined by the chosen people who are living not in this world. Peter starts to write a letter to a group of people who are starting to experience persecution for leaning into trusting and believing in Jesus. Now friends, to a degree, this is going to be helpful for us. Because we're starting to walk into times where Christianity is not as appreciated in our country as it once was, and certainly not biblical Christianity. That we're walking to some seasons, if you want to align yourself with God's word, you're probably going to be called some names. You might even be cast out of some social groups. You might even have some conversations where you stumble over the right words as trying not to offend Because the world has very little tolerance for biblical, the key word here, Christianity anymore. If you want to bend it, you can get away with anything. But we want to push you to a biblical view of the faith. And that's what Peter writes here. He's writing to these people who are starting to get pressed in on, who are starting to be persecuted and challenged in some very real ways. So this is what he says to him. This is what he says to an audience, and I should tell you up front, by the way, that if we start into this next three weeks, verses 3 through 12 are actually one exceedingly long compound Greek sentence. These are the sentences I wish I knew about when I was an eighth grade grammar student to have told my English teacher that God wrote compound sentences. Because he does, and he writes some really long ones, and this is one. Verses 3 through 12, we've got a really long compounded sentence with lots of clauses in it. And so we're going to take, take them individually. We've broken it into three chunks to put these three ideas before you. And this is the first one. It starts to lay the foundation for the rest of them. Peter writes this. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in Peter's letter, he starts, as a number of other biblical books do, with a a doctrinal section. A section of doctrine that declares what is true. And emphatically here, he declares what is true about you. If you allow me to step into a nerdier step, I'd say he starts with the indicative before he moves to the imperative. And where that becomes important for us as believers is what the Bible says about us is, this is true about you, therefore this. And when we miss it, and we think the Bible just says, do this, don't do that, we make it a moralistic book. And it's not. What the Bible actually does for us is it declares who you are. Believe it or not. This is what it says is true about you. And that we're called to live a life that reflects who we are. Does that make sense? And so he puts the indicative before the imperative. And so for the next couple of weeks... If you walk out of here going, yeah, Ben didn't tell me anything to do. What do I do this week? There's there's a tension here for a pastor. I like giving you things to do. But in the next couple weeks, we've got a lot of, this is who you are. This is what truth declares about you. And so your homework in that is to lean into that a little bit and say, why don't I believe it? What are some of the lies that I embrace that keep me from understanding what God says emphatically is true about me? So when he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Peter, writing rich theology, tells us that we've been born again to a living hope. Now, one of my absolute favorite things about studying Peter's writings is how much in his writings you see the life and the verbiage of Jesus Christ flow out of him. I think it's really cool how so often Peter's illustrations, his wording comes directly from a gospel because Peter walked with Jesus for a long time and made a huge impression on him. So when Peter wants to talk about things, he illustrates it with Jesus. And here's our first example. Because when Peter says you've been born again, no doubt that would remind you, as it would remind the readers, of a conversation happening between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. You may remember the story. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus late at night. says, Teacher, we know you come from God because nobody can do what you're doing without being involved with God, without knowing him. And Jesus, who always knows the heart behind the questions that are being asked of him, answers. And in John 3, 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, like a lot of people, misunderstands, makes it a physical truth rather than a spiritual truth. Says, you know, how does a man get crawl back into his mother's body and misses the point? And so Jesus brings him back into John 3.15 to clarify what it means to be born again, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is John 3.15. Now for those of you who like to keep track and like to keep score, having mentioned election, now we've got you believing You've got some human responsibility. It's here also. So we can deal with that or mark that out with a sharpie. But you actually find these texts in tension with each other. They're both present. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And of course, follow directly after that is John 3.16. Because numbers go sequentially. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And what Jesus puts on Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a man who tries by his actions to prove his worth, a man who tries by his actions to make himself worthy and worthwhile to God, to prove that he can follow all the rules, what Jesus says to this man is, believe in me. By believing in Jesus, you will not perish, but you'll have eternal life. By believing in me, you'll be moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Believe in him. And that's what it takes to be born again. Those who believe in Jesus. And you're reborn. And not just to a new life, but as Peter would put it, to a living hope. Hope is defined, by the way, in the dictionary as a feeling of expectation a desire for a certain thing to happen. And our hope in this case is not just a, an ex, a feeling of expectation, but our hope is alive. Our hope is living. It's that reality that our God is at work, He's moving, and our God is transforming lives. And Christians, check this. 
We should expect Him to be moving. We should expect Him to be working. We should be expecting Him to transform lives. Now having made a broadcast statement over all of you, let me personalize it for you a little bit more. What hope looks like in your life is that God is not done with you yet. In any single part of your life. In the darkest corner, the darkest part of your mind, where you go places that you don't want anyone to know that you go, he's at work. In your physical life, when you do things that you don't want anybody else to know about, or you don't want anyone else to find out about, God is still at work redeeming you and restoring you and changing you and transforming you. See, that's what hope looks like. So often we project an image of our lives and ourselves where we don't see God at work and we turn ourselves to hopelessness because we don't see him involved in the picture at all. And if you find yourself in this moment to be hopeless, please don't hear me saying don't. I'm not telling you to stop being hopeless. I'm just telling you to picture your future with God involved. To change the paradigm a little. To stop considering truth as you perceive it without God. To see that we have an alive and active God who is living. And we'll step into that more here in a moment. Because Peter writes that our living hope is derived from two things. First, as a result of his great mercy. Thank you. His great mercy. Now you should know that this mercy is a derivative of the Hebrew word hesed. If hesed gets translated into Greek, here's it comes to you in English. Hesed as a Hebrew word means that God shows his unmerited favor to people who don't, don't deserve it. Because of his great mercy. And secondly, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So first, he says, we can be born again by believing in Jesus because God the Father sent the Son to leave a perfect life and to die a horrible death in your place and in mine. And God showed his unmerited favor while we were unworthy, while we were undeserving. And because of his great mercy thrown through the, shown through the death of his Son, who paid the penalty for our sins, we're justified before God. And our God did not stay dead, and you know that. On the third day, he resurrected from the dead. And in his death, the payment for your sins was satisfied. And his rising, you are given a new life. And Paul writes in Ephesians 1, that this same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in your life. The same power that raised, that moved the tomb, that rolled the stone and breathed breath into a dead man's life is at work in you. And if God can raise a dead man, what can he do for you? Friends, our hope is alive. He's alive. We serve an active, living, working, moving God who's doing things all over the planet For his name's sake and for his glory, he's doing things all over our community 
for his namesake and for his glory. He's doing things in our church for his namesake and his glory. Friends, he wants to do things in you for his namesake and for his glory. He's not done working yet. We have a living hope. As we walk through 1 Peter, having entitled our series, Living in Hope, we have a call as believers to live out a life that is defined by his death, that's defined by his resurrection, and that is lived out with the power of God that raised his son. It's lived out with that living hope that God is still at work. He's still moving. And that's the hope that we have. So we live in hope. Hope that can overcome any sin. Hope that can transform our lives. Hope that each of us could lead an increasingly faithful life. And in our hope, we're actually promised trials. And we'll step into that next week. Because our hope doesn't leave us with a clean slate and a smooth sail. Next week, Peter addresses that. We'll have challenges. We'll have trials. None of that challenges our hope. They don't cause us to falter. Our trials should cause us to lean into our hope. And Peter assures us as he continues writing, not only do we have a living hope, but the climax of our hope he gets to in verse 4. And that the climax of our hope is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That our living hope gives us an inheritance. An inheritance is imperishable. It cannot be consumed. You cannot get to the end of it. You won't run out. An inheritance that's undefiled. It won't go bad. It won't get spoiled. An inheritance that's unfading. It won't go away. And again, you find this wording, this verbiage Peter takes from the life of Jesus. It parallels into the gospel in Luke 12 as Jesus is teaching. Luke 12, 32-34, Jesus teaches this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And you see the parallel? Because what Peter does is he takes some teaching of Jesus where Jesus tells us that as men we're tempted to put our treasure in all kinds of places that will fall apart. All kinds of places that are not trustworthy. Think places that will fail. Places where it can be taken. Places it can be destroyed. And to be quite frank, if you've been watching your retirement account the last couple months, you know this to be really true. Because you have, have been failed. It's been taken and it's been destroyed. Peter contrasts that with our inheritance in Christ as a worldly treasure. With, as worldly treasure saying your inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. That your inheritance in Jesus is secure and it's kept in heaven for you. It won't go away. It won't be spent. And it can't be consumed. Why? Because our God is faithful. And we have hope. 
So Peter tries to forecast this life for you. That as you walk through your days, even to the end of your days, you have hope. That whether you're in the sitting in this room as a 7-year-old or a 92-year-old, you have hope. You have hope in this life, and you have hope in the next. And Peter seals it up in verse 5, defining you, who by the, God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And what a great hope we have. That again, this power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in our lives. And is guarding our faith until the consummation of our salvation. When you lean into this text, you'd find just as a side note that salvation is looked at in different places in the scripture. That at this place, when Peter looks at salvation, he looks at his ultimate glorification. That at this point you were saved and yet you were not yet saved. There's a degree in which you've accepted Jesus. He's paid the price for your sins. And yet the consummation of that will be when you die. And you're ultimately saved into an eternal reality with God the Father. And so he forecasts God's tremendous hope for you until the day he takes you home. And says in that meantime, God's power is guarding you through faith. It's the same verbiage used by Paul in Philippians 4-7 when it says God will guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. God is at work in you. He's protecting you. One of my favorite verses in 1 Thessalonians says that one of the major jobs of the Holy Spirit is restraining the evil one in your life. God is guarding you, protecting you, keeping you, and giving you hope. As we walk into 1 Peter, having an understanding of who Peter was as an example, having an understanding of what he says about us is true. There were God's chosen people living in a world that will never appreciate us, that will deny us, that will push back on us. Because this world is not our home, we should be called to understand that by believing in Jesus Christ, by trusting in him unto salvation, We've been called to a living hope so that we understand that God is not dead. He's still at work and not just in Lithuania or Romania or Rwanda or some other foreign country that you might read about on the internet. He's at work in Moorhead and Fargo. He's at work on your street and he's at work in your house. And he's at work in your soul. We have a living hope because our God is a merciful God. We have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope that leads us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept for us. And we have a living hope Because God the Father has given us power that's going to guard our faith and trusting in Jesus to carry us through life. Friends, we have a living hope. Our God is at work and he's moving. And as we continue to walk through this book of 1 Peter, this is going to be our foundational text we're going to come back to. Because what Peter wants to challenge these elect exiles with is God is at work. 
He's moving. We've got a living hope. He wants that to be the thing that challenges them, that pushes them. He wants that to be the indicative that leads to the imperative that you start picking up in chapter 2. When he starts picking up some do this, don't do that. It's based on the reality that God's at work. And we'll lean into those as we get to them. Let me pray for us. Righteous Father, you are so good to us. Far better than we deserve. Father, your word would testify that there's not one of us in this room, not one that's good. Not even one. Not me, not an elder, not anyone. And Father, in your great mercy, you looked down upon us from your throne and had mercy on us by initiating by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf, to pay the price for our sins. And God, you could have stopped there, but you didn't. In fact, you went a step further. You raised your son from the dead. You put life back into him, that we would have a new life, a new hope. That we'd have a living hope. And that you would call us children of God, your sons and daughters. You didn't just restore us from our sins. You made us your kids. And as such, you love us. And because of Christ's resurrection, we have a new hope. So, Father, I pray for me, for my family, and for this church body. Father, that you would give us a vision of you at work in our lives. That we wouldn't buy into this reality that you're only at work in some parts of the geography of our planet, not in our lives. But God, we'd lean in to see you moving. That as a church, we'd dig into your Bible. We'd read your word and we'd look for you to move. I pray that as a church, we'd love our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and ask you to move. Father, you are a living God and we have a living hope. And we praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.